0: Welcome back to Interview with the PD Pod. I'm your host Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. Today is a special episode as it represents my first in-person interview since basically 2 years ago. Jack Flynn was my last guest at the IPOS annual meeting and unfortunately as this was canceled in 2020 due to the COVID pandemic, we had to table this for a year. So This is actually the first episode in person since then, which is why there's been a little bit of a delay. And uh, as expected, it it really was a wonderful conversation. My guest today is a special friend of mine. This is Jeff Sawyer, who is professor at uh, Campbell Clinic and University of Tennessee in Memphis. Jeff and I have known each other for some time, and he is going to be the incoming positive president for the uh, 2022-2023 year. He's a uh, tireless worker, wonderful surgeon, and an even better person. And he has been incredibly involved with POSNA. He's won the Special Achievement Award. He has been a traveling fellow. He's also uh, high up in the leadership with the Children's Spines uh, Foundation and has served as uh, uh, chair there. Uh, Jeff has always worked tirelessly for POSNA and I think uh, really is a great ambassador for our organization. I was really looking forward to this conversation because I've always admired his seeming serenity, which I'm sure he imparts in the operating room, and just general perspective on all things in our world, especially work-life balance. I'm also especially impressed with the fact that he recently completed his fourth, yes, fourth Ironman uh, triathlon at age 56. So without any further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation about life in pediatric orthopedics. Again, as always, thank you so much for your support of this concept. It was wonderful seeing so many people down at IPOS who had actually given the podcast a listen. So thank you for that. And uh, please accept my humble appreciation for all your well wishes. Thank you, as always, to Carter Clement and the rest of the podcast team. And I hope that everybody has a wonderful holiday season. And I look forward to seeing you at our next meeting. Uh, Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm currently sitting in the uh, president's suite at IPOS with uh, with Jeff, and it's great to have him here today. And I think that this is a, a unique opportunity for for me because of the fact that I get to talk to you as president, that you were kind enough to choose me as your annual meeting chair. And so we haven't had a ton of time to sort of sit down. And this is a lot of fun. And then on top of that, this represents for me the first time that we've done an in-person podcast since Jack Flynn did it two years ago at the same meeting. So it's pretty cool. But uh, so I'm really appreciative of you doing it. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks. It, it's fun to be back in person, whether it's this or at the meeting. Uh, and it's also great to be in uh, Min's suite. This is uh, yeah, a this really is special good. treat. So.
0: <laughs> for, those, for those who obviously can't see, we're tempting ourselves. There's four bottles of wine sitting about 20 feet from us that we're Wondering whether when we can get into. Um, I would say there were four bottles of wine. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I think there were only three, weren't there? Yeah, I see three. three, Yeah. Um, Okay, so um, so Jeff, you've got a really interesting uh, sort of background, and I was hoping that you could uh, talk about it a little bit. I know that you're an upstate New Yorker originally, and that you went to RIT for undergrad, but your path was not always orthopedics, right?
1: Correct. So it's kind of interesting. It's all people you meet along the way, right? So. I went to college uh, to be a gym teacher, and it was my second year of uh, uh, it was my second year of college. And one of my professors sat me down and said, did "You ever think about medicine?" I was like, "No way, I'm, I'm going to be a gym teacher." And uh, but I was lucky, you know. She saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, and so I did some time at the University of Cincinnati uh, in a co-op research plan uh, where I did research in pulmonary development in neonates, actually. And uh, that was I was really grateful to those people because they kind of showed me what a Ph.D. did and what an M.D. did and what a graduate student is. So I kind of got to see that maybe there was something uh, that I want, I liked in medicine. And then I went to medical school, at University of Rochester and just loved pediatrics. In fact, I was really close to matching in pediatrics and i met an orthopedic surgeon at the gym. And um, I, I really liked this guy. We were friends. I admired what he did. And he said, just come spend a week with me and I'll, I'll change my change your mind. And so long story short, he did. And so, so I get all the benefits. I get to take care of kids, which I really like, but I love being an orthopedic surgeon too. So I really get the best of both worlds.
0: That's great. I'm, I'm sort of curious. So, uh, I think you're the first person who said that they were going to, uh, college planning on being a gym teacher. Like talk to me a little bit about your just general upbringing. What, like, what was the impetus behind that? I'm guessing there was some athletics involved I know that you're involved in triathlons now
1: Were you super into sports as a kid and that sort of drove that, that desire. Yeah, I always played sports growing up. Um, my mother worked at the college, so I really didn't even look at other options. It was a great financial thing to go there. And I like sports, and that seemed like a really good thing to do. You know, college nowadays is so much more competitive and more involved than it was back when I went to college. Um, but again, it was just my love of sports. And uh, like, I think we had role models growing up, too, in sports. And so PE seemed like a natural kind of evolution for that.
0: But but the 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 concept was sort of you went without like a, a ton of idea of what you were going to do and Jim Teacher seemed sort of the reasonable option. Was was your mom involved in any of that side of things, or was she at, at the university, or was she uh,
1: like a professor in something else? I'm I'm actually grateful to my mom because she wanted me to be a mechanical engineer, and so she would bring home all these mechanical engineering thesis projects and have me read them, and I realized very quickly I wasn't going to be a mechanical engineer, so. Uh, it was just too much math for me. So, but, you know, all kidding aside, I'm just very fortunate. You meet people along the way that just see something in you that you didn't see in yourself. It it wasn't even in my realm of possibility that, that I could go on to medical school. My my dad's a uh, retired uh, high school principal. My mom was a secretary. And so it just even wasn't in my realm of thinking back
0: then. That's great. That's great. And then, and so uh, you said that you spent that time in Cincinnati, but you ended up at Penn for med school, right? And was, was Rochester, or, uh, sorry, Rochester yeah. uh, for uh, med school, was, was orthopedics, I mean, you said you had that one week experience. Was that sort of like, once you saw that you were sold um, outside of, of, uh, of pediatrics or how close did you really come to, to getting into uh, staying with, with the Pete side of things?
1: Yeah. So again, to mentors, um, I did research with a guy named Ed Pouzes in the lab at Rochester and Regis O'Keefe. Uh, Regis was a chief resident, believe it or not, no when I was uh, in the lab. So I um, ended up taking a year off. I did a Howard Hughes fellowship for a year doing research in their lab. Uh, and again, I got exposure to what does a resident do and what does a fellow do? And you know, Randy Rozier uh, was one of my mentors too. And so to, and I really admired Regis and Randy and Ed. And so uh, like everything in life, you just want to be like these people. And so it, that really sealed the deal. I think that gave me also a year to explore orthopedics, to spend time with the residents down in the emergency room, to you know go to the attending's house and see what does it look like as an attending. So, um, but that that year, you know, I think some people are so caught up in getting done, but that was probably one of the most valuable years in my career.
0: That's great. Yeah, I mean, that's that's crazy to think that Regis was she uh, was a resident back then. As well. He was a chief resident. Yeah, I remember. Cool. Yeah. So that, so then you went on to Penn. Right. And and um obviously Penn is uh has a great orthopedic program. Um and but it's changed from what we know it to be now. I mean, obviously a lot of the stalwarts were were there at the time. How did PEDs come out of that?
1: So it's it's interesting. When I went to Penn, there was a lot of turmoil. We we actually had, I think, four different chairmen during my five year residency program. And so it was very disruptive. You know, if you think of eighty percent of your residency, you had a it was, it was really disruptive in terms of your education. Uh, and I rotated through CHOP. And so we spent two years there as a rotate through CHOP. We spent three months as a junior resident and three months as a senior resident. And so I just, uh, like all things in life, I the people at CHOP at that time, Dennis Drummond, Rich Davidson, uh, to put some time on it, Jacqueline was a new attending when I was there mm-hmm. as a senior resident. Uh, Ted Ganley was the sports fellow just to oh, kind of put this on yeah. in perspective. So chop has changed dramatically. Uh, it's like everything in life. You don't know how good you have it till you leave. And you you don't appreciate a place like chop until you go around the country and see other places and you realize how special that is. Um, and then Dennis Drummond is, was one of my career mentors. Uh, just, uh, the two men I think in my life that have really steered me in orthopedics are, are Dennis Drummond and Jim Bade, of course. Yeah. So, um, Do do you have time? Can I tell you a funny um, Uh, Drummond story? Yeah,
0: I would love a funny Drummond story. So just just because it helps for some of the younger listeners, tell give a little background on Dennis, and then.
1: So uh, I guess I'm kind of dating myself. So Dennis Drummond uh, was one of the giants and leaders in in pediatric spine surgery. Uh, He was a very tough tough man. uh, Came from Canada. Uh, but he, he loved you like a son, and, and that was sometimes some tough love and sometimes some not-so-tough love, and uh, but just one of the giants in the field. And so uh, as a junior resident at CHOP, you present the cases in the morning that came into the emergency room, and when there's nothing to do, they'll show you cases that they had. At that time, it was x-rays, and they put an x-ray up of a congenital pseudarthrosis, and Drummond said to me, what would you do with this? And I'd never seen it before <laughs> in my life, so I said, I'll open it up, and I'll bone graft it. And about halfway through, he, he stopped. And in front of the whole uh, group, this would be my co-residents, all the attendings, he said, uh, Sawyer, you just don't get this. And I was stunned. One of the giants telling me, I don't get this. And he said, you know what? I'm going to make you my project. And uh, that was back in the days of digital pagers. So for the next three months, my pager was constantly going off with Dr. Drummond's office number. And it'd be his assistant. And she would say, Dr. Drummond, would like to see you in the office. Dr. Drummond has a patient he'd like to show you, uh, and you
0: would leave whatever you were doing, whatever yeah. I was
1: doing, and I would go. and He always would show me something interesting. Maybe it's a, a an interesting family or interesting condition. Uh, maybe it's one of his patients that have been twenty year follow up. He would even show up in the emergency room. Like I would be down in the emergency room, and they'd be like, "Dr. Drummond is here." And so, I mean, in retrospect, to have that level of his time and his energy and investment. Um, is incredible to me now as I become a mentor. And it really did. I mean, I think any major professional life decision I've ever done has been with, with his advice and Jim Beatty's advice over the
0: years. I feel like we are, you know, we were blessed with mentors from that generation because that was such a, I think just the speed of medicine and the, the volume of practice and EMR and all that stuff has really made it, made it so that that kind of Attention to a single person is very difficult, but it's amazing. I mean, i have you know I had Neil Green and I had Tony Herring. These were people who really I think took a, a huge interest in in my education. But I hope that we're able to continue to do things like that and pass it on to to the you know future generations um, as we get into sort of that that stage. Um, well, that's interesting. So you mentioned Beatty, and I mean I, I knew that you were going to sort of go in that direction. I, I didn't know Dennis well. I met him, I believe, once uh, very, a very long time ago. Um, but the uh, but I will say that uh, Beatty and Drummond have a little bit different persona. And uh, how did you end up going down to Memphis? Uh, I mean, was that sort of an arranged marriage kind of thing, which I think happened a little bit back in the day? Or was there something about Memphis that really spoke to you?
1: You know, it's really interesting. All the years, and I've talked about these guys in the same conversations, I never – ever put that together, how different their personalities yeah. are, but they are very different people in some ways. In some ways they, they're thought leaders. They are just good. They were Dennis Drummond was a good man. He's unfortunately passed away. Um, they're just good men. They're just good life leaders. Um, I guess to the younger people, my regret is I didn't get to thank him in time. So I think if uh, some of the younger mid-career people Take that minute and thank your mentors, because what we just talked about, it is a tremendous effort, amount of investment they put in us. And I, I, it's one of my regrets. I never got to thank him for for
0: that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Actually, you know, Neil Green passed away four or five years ago, and we were fortunate that when he retired, a bunch of us had a party at Pasadena when he was the, um, uh, uh, the speaker. Um, and that was, you know, I just sort of had this moment of clarity that I needed to thank him, even though he was still, I still had this Pavlovian response and anybody who trained under him at Vanderbilt who's listening will remember that. I mean, just talking to him, I would start getting some sweat, sweats in the ar- under the arms and stuff like that. But he did so much for me. And even though he was intimidating, he just, you know, you could tell his passion for education and stuff like that. So, so was that, that transition to, um, to Memphis, was,
1: how, did that, how did that come about? So yeah, so when I was looking at the fellowships, uh, I obviously talked to Dr. Drummond. Campbell Clinic has is, is, is always had a reputation for being, uh, you know, leaders in education. And um, but it, here's another funny story. You know, you and I are sitting here talking at IPOS. This is before the match, and so I had really done my interview cycle and was headed towards San Diego, and uh, had talked to Dr. Wanger about this, and. I'm kind of glad he's retired now, not here. Uh, but it was actually at IPAS, and, and I talked to Beatty about this yesterday at IPAS. I heard Doctor Beatty speak, and it was late in the cycle, but again before the match. So I came up and said, "Can I interview at Campbell Clinic?" He said, "Sure, come, you know, come, come interview." And then, um, really, the rest is kind of history. But it was a meeting like IPAS, where, um, like you and I are sitting at today, that just a young surgeon heard one of the giants talk, and he gave me the chance.
0: Yeah. So the the other thing that I found interesting, um, and I had Todd Milbrandt um, on the podcast a while back, and he had a similar thing where he went, or, or he sort of started in one place and um, was in private practice actually before he came back to Lexington. You were in Chicago for a while. Were you in academics, or were you? Yeah.
1: So when I when I left uh, Campbell Clinic, I moved to Chicago where I was partners with Ken Quo at gotcha. Midwest yeah. Orthopedics, and Ken uh, was was a great mentor. Uh, Ken showed me a lot about. Uh, becoming an orthopedic surgeon, a transition from fellowship to private practice, kind of unfortunately, uh, kind of retired or slowed down here in the U.S. Shortly after I got there, so I was really essentially the only pediatric orthopedist for a 40-person group. So I was unfortunately too young. I needed the mentorship or the person down the hall to kind of, kind of help me with that. Um, the the standing joke was in that days it was FedEx so I was FedExing so many X rays back to Memphis for advice it was cheaper just to move to Memphis than it was to FedEx all the X rays back to ask my questions so um, but yeah that was a great first start I'm, I'm grateful to a lot of people in Chicago too who even though they were in different groups helped me and that you know Howard on and uh, Chris Dewald. Just again, John, John Sarwar, John Grayhack. These these guys, even though they were in some ways my competitors, they they took me under their wing and really helped me get started in Chicago.
0: That's great. I mean, it, it is a small, close knit community, so it's it's great to have that. I'm curious, and it's a little bit of sidebar from where I was going to go with this, but um, with that experience, how do you counsel your current fellows? And I've I've been asked this I feel like five times already mm-hmm. this weekend, sort of about the small group solo practitioner jobs that are available because the job market's a little bit harder and you've lived this. Um, do you think it's doable? Do you think that being a solo pediatric orthopedist in a, either a really large multi-specialty group or just trying to sort of go and hang, hang your
1: shingle um, in a town because you just really wanted to be there is is feasible these days? You know, it's interesting. I think that you need a certain size population base to do what we do. We need infrastructure. We need Pediatric anesthesia, pediatric cardiology. A lot of things we take care of are relatively rare, so we need a big population base. I I think that the the sweet spot, I think, is somewhere in the 500,000 to a million, million five population area. You know, you're in a little uh, denser population area than I am, and you certainly have more orthopedic surgeons in your area than I do. What's really interesting to us is we're seeing the great migration with COVID and the, the great resignation We may see very different clustering of jobs with some smaller cities that have grown tremendously and uh, movement away from some large population bases. So, for example, the New Jersey, New York, Philly corridor is the most densely populated corridor of pediatric orthopedics, or was. Be interesting to see what that looks like four or five years. Maybe South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, or you know something like that. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. But I think back to your question. I think it's really tough in this day and age. Uh, to be a solo private practice pediatric orthopedist the the bar is so high now for what we have to do and the the demands on our, our time and in terms of co- cross coverage and those things as a private practice person are it's just so much easier to do that at a bigger center nowadays
0: yeah you know i've i get asked it a lot and i've um when i was looking at jobs i, I looked at a job that was in a city that uh we had my wife had some relatives at and a small small city but i would have taken care of a large portion of northern florida and um uh and tony herring basically said no and i think part of it i think was my personality he knew um and i think part of it was just knowing sort of how difficult that is so i don't know there's a good answer because obviously somebody has to be the first person into those centers um and the communities i think a lot of times needed i think of you know georgia we have we have atlanta which is you know 6 million but there's another 2 million people spread out in places like augusta and athens and um and savannah and whatnot and you do need some pediatric orthopedic coverage so that you don't have people driving 6 hours or 5 hours or something like that up to see us so it's it, it's not an easy answer but
1: yeah i think for the young people though um, you have to be careful. I think there's a lot of jobs out there where a general group wants a pediatric orthopedist to be full service, and they say you can build your practice. And you have to be careful of those jobs. But you're right; someone has to be the first into the into these areas. And I think the population is going to look different a decade from now.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So, so you mentioned that you were, that you uh, sort of after a couple of years just realized that we're going to move back to Memphis. Was there something? Did did you sort of make that push, or did Beatty call and say, "Hey, we'd love you to come back"? How did that come about?
1: Yeah, you we know, we had talked about it uh, probably about a year at, at the different meetings. And, um, you know, there's certain phone calls where you you only, I think there's certain phone calls where you just say yes, and you're only going to get one shot at it. So uh, for me to go back and, and join my mentors, the people I respect, people that train me, um, was just a once in a lifetime opportunity. And then to grow the practice, as you know, we've grown tremendously. And uh, the people we've added, uh, you know, Derek Kelly and David Spence and now Ben Sheffer, just really fit that mold. We we just have such a great chemistry. Uh, you know, I think short of your family, the people that you work with is probably the most important choice you're going to make in your life.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so you, you're you actually helped bridging in the next part of the conversation. So, you know, I know your practice well, which is pretty heavy in spine. But your practice, actually a lot like mine, is still on a lot of levels somewhat of a generalist. I mean, you do a fair amount of, uh, of a pediatric general orthopedics at what stage in the in your career though do you think that you started to morph away from being a true generalist to being a little bit more spine heavy and how have you used that sort of concept to create the group that you were alluding to with David and uh, and derek and everybody who because you guys are starting to subspecialize a little bit more but that i'm guessing when you were a fellow wasn't there
1: yeah so i think um our general culture of our group is that we're generalists with a niche we, we all like doing general orthopedics mm-hmm. i you know, in our this day and age, I think the one thing that still unites most of us that we do pediatric trauma. And so I think we all like doing it. Uh, But again, I think as our field gets more subspecialized, we're starting to do that. So I think from a what you do standpoint at our place, I think we all do everything, but we're certainly finding these little niches. Um, With our model there, there's really no downside of double scrubbing or you know, I get a, a hip case. I'm certainly going to call David Spence or Jim Beatty to come help me, and vice versa with spine. So, not only is working with your partners more fun, but you get better outcomes. I think on the um, on the cultural side, um, I think the secret at our place is that we have a very horizontally integrated structure. So we, it's never been like you know, Dr. Beatty or Warner are the uh, boss or the chairman, and we're underneath them. In fact, everything's equal. Uh, it frustrates people sometimes because they want to know who our chief is. And honestly, we don't really have one. Um, what that allows us to do is play to our strengths. So, for example, uh, our two senior partners, Jim Beatty and Bill Warner, tend to interface more with administration and those kind of uh, things. You know, our younger guys like Ben Sheffer, or David Spence, they're more boots on the ground in terms of managing a residency and those kind of day to day operations. And I'm kind of in the middle. So, I think it allows us to pick and choose who's got the best skill set for the situation versus. You know, who's the chairman
0: how do you think that's going to grow over the coming years um do you think that uh, we we have held on quite a bit to our sp- or to our general pediatric roots um i mean i still do uh, hips and feet and guide growth and obviously a lot of spine but um you know i'm always sort of wondering like 10 years from now when you look at dennis vito my partner he is really sort of and, and we have some pure sports people as well. They're the, the people who have really morphed into a true sub-specialty practice. Do you think it's going to get
1: to that point in Memphis? Do you think the market's going to demand it? Or We're in a little different marketplace than you are because, uh, you know, our catchment area is probably two or 300 miles. So if you if you look at us geographically, we're about three hours from Vanderbilt uh, to the east, three hours from Little Rock to the west, uh, three hours from Jackson, Mississippi to the south, and to, uh, about three hours from St. Louis to the north. So, a lot of that stuff comes to us inherently, so we can still be generalists. I think it'd be different if we had multiple pediatric groups in our town. I think that's part of who we are and what we do. We we all like being generalists. You know, in our group, we still take adult trauma calls, so we we still do a lot of general orthopedics at night, and um, and we enjoy that. But I think the way peds is going, the way orthopedics is going, we have to adapt to that too. And. Not everybody in our group needs to know how to do a PAO or to do a VCR, but we need people in that group who are good at it. So I think some of it's going to happen just organically.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. So uh, you know, you were you were talking about the catchment area, and, and I know the city, and I'm, I'm familiar with the med. So like your practice in general, yours, but also the rest of the group is very busy, especially with trauma. Um, and one of the things that we have, I think, struggled with at times, but then also succeeded at times, is leveraging the volume. Because as opposed to, you know, say a Chicago program that has four or five different hospitals that they're sort of all competing with, with, you're the only show in town. And so you have these big volumes. But one of the challenge from like an academic standpoint is leveraging that volume and turning it into from from patient care to sort of an academic place where you've got research and you've got education. How, How have you guys done that?
1: Yeah, so so if you look at us and our adult trauma centers, we're in the top one to three busiest in the country, depending on what metric you use, whether it's admissions or procedures. Or So I think volume drives research, volume drives outcomes. And so I think we've used it to leverage it in a positive way because we have big experience with a lot of these uh, traumatic conditions. You know, it's, uh, it's rolled into things like micro grants and some work uh, on femur fractures and things that we enjoy. You know, it's allowed us to collaborate with other centers, too, uh, which we really enjoy. So I think the leverage is that uh, volume drives a lot of things and and as well as excellence, because uh, it's just you get more reps at at taking care of all these
0: things. And are you able to is the is the hospital able to see the value in that and that in other words, that that your volumes can be converted into academic or national recognition and so that the, the resources that they may allot you are going to bring them something back? Have they been able to see that?
1: Yeah, so as you know, we just kind of crossed the threshold where, you know, over half of pediatric orthopedists are now hospital employed. So that's that's really changed in my career for sure where most people are in private practice model. So it's a little more difficult now because we're, we're essentially a private practice that uses that hospital. So, uh, you know, we talked today a little bit about resource allocation and asking for resources. So we have to show them our value for them to provide resources so i think the value is the mission right if you're going to be a level one trauma center then you have to support the people that support you uh we certainly were instrumental in them getting the ACE, uh, american college of surgeons level one designation was yeah. our research and our volume and most of our centers you know orthopedics is probably the busiest trauma admitting service so if you're looking for something at your center i would look at your trauma volumes um, and it's really partnership i mean we we need the children's hospital they need us and so there's going to be things we disagree on, but at the the end of the day, we both have to work together. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, you know, we, we were up until very recently because now we're hospital based, but we were very recently a a similar model and that codependency I think can be a double-edged sword at times, but, but we, we tried to leverage it to really take advantage. And I, I felt like over time, the hospital has seen the value in the national exposure and things like that, that they're the resources, although limited, that they provide, allow us to do. So I think it's been good. I, I wanted to talk, uh, cause, cause we're in the president suite and this is going to be your suite in a year, which is going to be great, um, uh, about sort of your journey through posna and especially, and I've heard this a lot from, uh, from previous guests, just sort of, we know the organization is incredible, but how did you get, how, what was your uh, process in terms of getting involved at a young age and, and early on in your career?
1: Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, when I first started, when I was in Chicago, I would come to the meeting. I really didn't know anybody. I really didn't participate. Uh, and it really took me coming back to Memphis where the culture is. You go to Posnet and you participate. So I think to the younger members out there uh, participate, get involved early. It's a great organization. I watched Derek Kelly when he joined us, he came out of Scottish Rite. He got involved early. And that was really a jumpstart to his career. So it is probably of all the organizations you and I touch and you and I are in a lot of them. It's probably the most welcoming, friendly, inclusive organization that we deal with. So I, I can't imagine anybody turning uh, somebody away that wants to help the positive mission. And I certainly wouldn't do that. And then from there, we talked about a little bit yesterday, there's so many opportunities in this organization. So if you're interested in overseas work, or you're interested in uh, education or maybe tech, we, we have that for everybody. And i think the secret is as you get into these groups and not only do you learn how to lead a group but you watch really good leaders lead a group and the secret like we talked yesterday it's everything that we've done to get where we are in our career it's show up early work hard be motivated be on time there's no magic recipe to moving up this organization you just have to do it over and over again and then you know todd milbrand i know you've had on todd is a great friend of mine we were traveling fellows together um, that really cements the bond. And I, I know you know that. And so Todd's advice was find a home. And so, you know, I was in a lot of organizations, but POSNA has always been my home. And it always comes back to the fact that when I'm doing something for Posn, it just feels right. It feels like where I want to be and where I should be. There. Now, all these other organizations are great. So you, you may find your home somewhere else, but this is the home. And moving up in then is just repeating that cycle over and over.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny because my follow up question was going to be, what are the challenging parts of becoming so involved with positive? But I think you, you know, you see the breath and you want to get involved with so many things. And for me, the challenge has been just how how much can I spread myself before I'm too thin? Um, and I'm sure you probably found that over time that, that you can't that it's possible to do that.
1: It is. And uh, that's one of the hardest things that, um as I moved into the presidential line in the uh, leadership Is there so many fun things to do, but you have to, you have to step back a little bit for a couple reasons. One is that you right there's only so much bandwidth, and my energy needs to be somewhere else. The other thing is you need opportunities for other people to grow, and so this is a great uh, place for young leaders to to grow. So you need to get out of the way and let them let them have their time to grow. So. Um, but you're right. It's really hard to stay focused. There's so many fun things to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, you you were kind enough last night to give me a little bit of a, a preview on this. But can you maybe talk about some of the thoughts that you've had for your presidency and what some of your plans are moving forward? Mm-hmm. I, you
1: know, I think uh, I think we've been really fortunate. We've had kind of the right people at the right time. So, you know, when everything broke out with COVID, uh, Mike Vitale just has, I, I think, We just had the right people at the right time. So when we went into uh, self-management, Steve Albanese was perfect, and he did a lot of work behind the scenes. That was not an easy task to get us up and running independently. I don't know how many construction blueprints uh, Steve looked at Mm -hmm. over the years, uh, but he was the right person for the right time. And then COVID comes in, and that was probably one of the most destabilizing things we've ever had in our field, at least outside event. And Michael handled it uh, tremendously. He was just the right big thinker calm and just just pull us through that and then you know min's whole thing has been back on our feet and so min's got a great personality for that very calming very organized and it's got us back on our feet so you know i think um i think building on that i mean how can you i'm very blessed right i'm building on great work by great people so i'd like to see it continue i think uh, like you and i talk maybe lean and mean right i think that um i think in this day and age of resource scarcity we need to start thinking about you know, can we be leaner? Can we get the same amount of uh, member benefit for, for less? Um, I don't think we need to be mean, but I think we need yeah. to be, I think maybe more lean. Yeah, more lean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. uh, but I think the the big challenges I think in our field are always going to be fragmentation. How do we keep this everybody's home? Uh, tech to me is something I think we're really going to focus on because as you and I have seen in these meetings, as you're looking to run the, the 2023 meeting, tech is here to stay. Yeah. And so we need to get better at tech. We need to do this in a, but in a financially responsible way. Um, our, our young people—they don't—they're not reading books like you and I did. And so, uh, videos and, and uh, all the video content that we have at Posna is incredible resource, and we need to learn how to leverage that, and make it better. So tech is going to be a big thing. And I think that the, the workforce—we're going to redo the workforce because uh, we were going to do it anyways. But I think with the COVID and the, and the Great Resignation it's just a good time to, to touch that again. So those are kind of the big focuses. Um, but you never know. You never know what the world's going to bring. You know? yeah, so, yeah. Um, but again, I think no matter what happens, we have such great leadership and such a great organization. It's going to be fine.
0: I, I, I want you to talk a little bit more about the education thing. I mean, we're at, I, I'm sure everybody here would, would argue, the best educational uh, you know four days in all of orthopedics, certainly probably not just limited to pediatric orthopedics. But when I look back, my first meeting was I want to say 2007, so it's been 14 years, and it's changed tremendously. I mean, just the, the the layout of everything has changed. The you know the facilities have changed, but a lot of it I think is in response to some of the stuff that you alluded to. People learn differently now, and I mean even the trauma session that that I was fortunate enough to be involved with yesterday was a take a new take on sort of education. Do you have thoughts? I mean, this obviously also applies back at your own institution, but sort of how POSNA can can continue to innovate in a way that's not too burdensome on the educators, but it's still going to continue to benefit the educatees.
1: Yeah. So um, great. I think a couple a couple things on this. One, I think POSNA, we're the right size. We're big enough to have members with unique and uh, I, I think POSNA are the right size. We have uh, enough members that we have a very unique skill set and an array of skill sets we can draw from but we're not too big or we get burdened down in innovation. When you talk to industry and we met with industry today, we are way ahead of some of the other specialties in terms of learning and and things like the flipped classroom. And as you know, IPOS is a a think tank and an innovation center. So I like, I've always liked the fact that IPOS, not everything is going to make it and it's okay to fail here at IPOS. And in fact, you want some things to fail because then we're really innovating. So and that's always been the culture of iPo so so I think we're way ahead it I think we have to get better and industry struggling with the same thing the the value of you and I talking in person is completely different than you and I talking over a zoom or the handshake that you have at lunch and industry struggling with the same thing how do they how do they shake your hand how do they how do you try their products and so we're, we're all struggling with this but I think it's synergistic things there's things that we can do with the industry. There's things we can do with other societies. We're all, we're all asking the same questions, but uh, I'm really encouraged by the fact we are we're out in front of this and not that we should take our foot off the gas, but just realize that we're doing a really good job with innovation.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's especially true when we're looking at the value added of the in-person component, because I think last year taught us that yes, virtual is feasible, but I mean, I think that at least as part of the annual meet, uh, uh, meeting planning committee, none of us were really excited to do that again. To have to, you know, incorporate video um, uh, abstracts and stuff like that. And I think that it's it is uh, excellent that the group is thinking very uh, very much in a forward manner as to how to make it so that people want to come, that they want to get their butt in the seat, that they want to be here and shake hands. And you know, I, this meeting is so great because so much of it's focused on the trainees, and they always want to meet you in person because nobody wants to meet you over Zoom. But I think that you know we've seen a drop in attendance this year, which is expected, especially given travel restrictions. But I hope our hope, I know you're my hope, is that by the time Nashville comes around for annual meeting, that we'll be back or even better, which is great.
1: No, that, that's the hope. Um, fingers crossed, right? Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll make the best national meeting there's going to be, and it's going to be great. I, I think to go back, to uh, you know, to um, education, it's one of the missions of what we do, too. I think, you know, in some of the other specialties, you could be completely in private practice and never teach, but most of us, it's just organically what we do. So it's not a really not a big surprise that we're innovators educating as an organization because, a lot of us are innovating, educating in our home institutions.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, Jeff, I wanted to switch gears a little bit to um, spine, um, and you and I both have a uh, have a big interest in spine. And it's interesting because I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, you've you've taken a huge um, uh, interest in EOS and have uh, served, you know, at the highest level on the um, uh, on the study groups and and been involved with ICHIOS. And it's but it's interesting because. The, there's this paradox between idiopathic scoliosis, which still represents, you know, whatever 70, 60 percent of our of our patients at a busy center. And then like EOS, which I mean, if you throw in sort of neuromuscular is maybe 20, 30 percent, but is like 100 percent of the headaches. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that is where the challenges mm-hmm. really occur. And it's funny because I think that for people who are very uh, familiar with the techniques for AIS management, I mean, hopefully you can walk out of the OR you know, swipe your hands and you're done and you've done a great thing and the patient's going to do well. And EOS is totally different. And, and there, it can be the most, I mean, it's far and away the most humbling thing that I take care of. And yet we still jump on that as well. And I'm curious how EOS became the thing that you, I know that you obviously take care of a lot of idiopathic scoliosis, but how was this sort of really challenging subset of patients, something that you really get gravitated towards? Yeah,
1: it's really interesting uh, to go back to, to mentorship and people. Uh, I remember early on, I was asked to um, go to the children's spine. What was it? The was it, chest wall. So it, it's really going back to people. Um, uh, early mid career, I was asked to join the, the chest wall study group. This was the original VEPter study group. And I remember I showed up day one and across the table is like Bob Campbell, John Smith, Jack Flynn. And I, I really felt like, oh, what am I doing in this room with, with these giants? But it was an inclusive group, and they brought me in. I got involved in research projects, and from day one, I was I was one of them. And they they just allowed me uh, to to learn about EOS. Coming from a smaller place, uh, the study groups, and for younger people, it's a great way to get started because I had access to thousands of patients and uh, data that I could could write about and think about and learn about, which I could never have done on my own at my own home institution. Um, but you, you and I both take care of EOS patients. You're right. It's probably probably our biggest win sometimes and some of our biggest losses. And um, my philosophy, and maybe this is some of our geography, is we're really last stop on the train for these kids. So these kids can't go anywhere else. or not going anywhere else. And so um, it's just kind of our mission to take care of them. So uh, you're, you're right. In AIS surgery, I think we can walk away 95% of the time and we're done. And, and that's completely opposite. It's, the only thing about that an AIS surgery is the same is that it's on the spine. Everything else is different. But um, I worry a little bit uh, in general, because it's very expensive. Uh, we still struggle with the defining value, right? So you go to your hospital system and I think we need to really define the value in what we're doing. We, we inherently know it. We joke, it's like art, right? We know the value in what we do. we see these kids. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to explain to our hospitals what's the value. Um, and if you look at us on a national or global scale, what we do is very expensive, and a tiny, tiny percent of what the U.S. spends their money on healthcare for. So I think it's on us in the EOS field over the next four or five years. We need to really define what our value is.
0: So I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a question, which I think uh, hopefully it, it'll it'll make sense. But when you think sort of holistically, globally on care for AIS with, uh, using a football analogy, what yard line are we on? How close are we to the end zone?
1: In as surgery? Yeah. I think, um, great analogy. I would say we're like, uh, third and goal. Yeah. You know, we, we are there. I think you're going to make incremental changes. Um, maybe we can be a little faster, a little less blood loss, but we're really there. And I think that's one of the struggles, right? Is we're trying to improve on something that's already very good. Yeah. And so sometimes, I, to use football analogy, I hope we don't take a penalty and move backwards a little bit, trying to move the ball forward because we do such a good job with like that. All right. So now I'm going to ask you, how about EOS? Oh, I, I think we're on our own one yard line. And, um, uh, but I do think, and probably thrown into the wind, but I do think that's the opportunity, right? We can really move the needle for these kids. I, I think, I think there's a chance in EOS we can have um, just a, a, a tremendous. Gain. I think we're going to make incremental gains uh, in AS. Like I said, I think transformational gains could still happen in the care of uh, EOS patients.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I was hoping you'd say that. And I mean, it's funny because at the end of the day, the biology in EOS is still our biggest enemy. And I feel like we've. I mean, even if you take in something that's sort of newer and more progressive, like tethering it's still a mechanical management problem, but basically at the end of the day, you've taken care of the problem. Whereas in EOS, it's a biological problem that we're throwing metal at and we're throwing these other things. And I, I mean, I'm excited for, you know, hopefully being in career for another 20, 25 years to be able to see the, the, uh, uh, like you said, leaps and bounds, large improvements. But I just find that that EOS is is such a an interesting area, and I'm always fascinated when people is just sort of tackle it. Because I, I remember a funny story about John Emmons when I was interviewing um, for fellowship there. I followed him around in clinic for a while, and he said, "Nick, what what kind of practice do you want?" And I said, "You know, I'd really like a practice like yours." And he goes. Nick, I have 160 kids with vectors in it that need to be lengthened. You don't want me to practice, <laughs> and I think he was probably right. I mean, yeah. thank goodness for yeah, the advent of a magnetically expandable rod. Thank God for guided growth, and 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 also thank God for casting and understanding that people don't need to be operated on at age one. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and those things have changed, but it's 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 something that's going to be exciting to see over time.
1: You know, I, I think the other thing speaking to our culture of our society you know, we hit, uh, five, six years ago, we had two distinct camps, right? We had the kind of the, the Vector chest Wall Study Group and the Pediatric Spine Study Group, and we merged. And so I don't think that could have happened in all the organizations. And you look at us now, we have over 120 investigators who are, who are really dedicated to improving the lives of EOS kids. We have 10,000 kids in our database. So even though they're probably the toughest patients we take care of, that the people in our society or our field have stepped up. They're not shying away from it. In fact, we have more people joining our organizations all the time. So we're, we're going to find something in this field. And, you know, we've challenged our study groups to think a decade ahead or 15 years ahead. Maybe it's in biomaterials. Maybe it's in predictive analytics. There's, there's these transformational changes may come from outside of spine surgery, and we just need to be open to these things. But I think the future is incredibly bright. You look at the people – you have 120 people working on this problem of the caliber that we do. We're, we're going to find something better.
0: Yeah, it, but it, 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 that's you sort of are alluding to to something that I think is is one of the larger challenges, which is that you know we even though we can make these leaps and bounds, we've sort of come up against a point where we're just making sort of incremental gains. We really need to break out and have that next step that will help us. And I think I mean a, something like a. Even though it's not addressing the biology, but a magnetically expandable rod was that for a period because you took this thing you always had to do every six months, and then you well maybe you don't have to do it every six months, and that was a big gain, and we were able to study that. So it'll be fun to see sort of what the next step is.
1: And if I turn it around, you though, you know, think about some of your EOS patients, right? I mean, I'm sure you have some amazingly grateful patients. That's so cool. Um, and you become part of their family, right? Because you you see them in two, and you follow them through high school, you see him go to college, you know, so I think it's probably some of the most, most rewarding work that you and I do is seeing these people.
0: It's it's amazing. I mean, and and the families are so grateful. And that's actually, in a way, part of the thing that you almost, I mean, it's, it's great for the kids not to have to do it. But there was something about seeing the kids every six months and seeing the family. And I, I mean, I had so many kids who were who were doing great and families are grateful. You get to see them. And even though it's just that one little procedure, you knew that you would see them now with MCGR, sometimes they're being lengthened in, in our APP clinics and stuff like that. So um, you lose a little bit of that contact. Um, let me talk, let me change gears a little bit to something that comes up perhaps in an um, EO surgery. So obviously like we said, these are some of the more challenging surgeries. These are three columns and revisions and they are surgeries that I think challenge even the most calm of, uh, you know, relaxed surgeon because they, because complications happen and they can happen in, in a major way. You have always struck me as somebody who doesn't get real ruffled easily. And I'm curious, are you the same way in the OR? And if so, how do you create serenity in the OR?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting, right? I think, uh, that's, yeah, that's a tricky one, right? Um, know i think that's game time for us right that's when we turn it on and you know i think over the past decade you and i've certainly seen that model change where uh and mike vitale in a surgery safety summit i think has really brought this to the forefront that it's the team's success and so you set the tone for the day so fred azar who's our chief of staff at the Campbell clinic always tells us that you set the tone for the day so if you come in Angry, upset, distracted. Your your team sees that whether whether they they consciously know that or not, they pick up on on your vibe. So, I think when you go to that or that day, your calmness sets the tone for the entire day. Um, You also like you know you have to have a good team around you. That's what makes you calm is that you have a lot of things to worry about. But if your team is good at what they do, you don't have to worry about all those details. So, I think you have to surround yourself with good people who are good at what you do. But I'm a firm believer when I get up in the morning, I I basically say to myself, you you know, you set the tone for your team for the day. And that's, that's true.
0: And how about, how about when stuff's hitting the fan and and things aren't going right? How, I mean, again, you've always struck me as somebody who seemed like you would be calm in the face of adversity. How, how do you do that? Obviously you've got a great team around you, but at the end of the day, when something's going wrong, you're the one who has to acutely fix it typically.
1: Right. So, you know, I, I think it's repetition and practice, um, I think you, you and I have great uh, mentorship networks. so rarely in something difficult have I either thought about it alone. I'm probably not there alone I'm probably with somebody who's also good at what they do. And so I, you build those things into the day to really drop your risk the number of variables you have to manage. but you know there are times that's you and I have to make some really tough decisions that are really high risk and you know uh, you, you're a parent too I think it's I look at it like parenting as you make the best decisions you can with the information you have at the time yeah and, um, but you know some days go go better than others and um, you know I, I use the John Smith analogy is the the you know, when you get done with one of these the best thing to do is call your travel agent because you probably need a vacation yeah. so um, <laughs> uh, you know I I think that the stereotype I think the stereotypical surgeon of someone who's uh, you know, very demanding and critical, you know, you and I trains in some of that era, but I don't, I don't think that's how it is today. I, I think it's better today than it was probably when you and I first started training.
0: Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. So, um, I, I thought my suspicion is one of the things that has, um, helped you stay calm and, and just sort of, uh, have some clarity of, of, uh, of thought is your attention to exercise and health. And I wanted to get into this because I, I mentioned this last night. I'm always in awe of anybody who can finish a triathlon, but an Ironman four times is pretty awesome. I'm not going to name your age, but at your age, that's, that's um, pretty amazing to do. And so um, how it, – obviously, it takes a lot of time to train for that. How does that – how does sort of your your work out or your, your life outside of work help you stay a good surgeon, and, and how does it impact you um, from a mental standpoint?
1: Yeah, you know, I think um... – I think, you know, the, the concept is work-life balance. And, uh, Min Coker said it best. I heard him at, I think it was IPOS when he said, you're never really in balance. Uh, there's times when you're working too much and there's times when you're with family too much and there's times when you're doing other things too much, but as long as you keep that set point and you're always working back toward that set point. So, you know, up up until this last race, yeah, there were, there were times probably my work-life balance was a little more toward training and that part of my life. But, um, but there's ways you can do that. Like you, uh, my kids would join me on a run or I would run a little bit. Then my wife and I would take our dogs for a run and then I would go do do things. There's ways to do it. To your point, I I got married at 40. I don't, I don't mind saying I'm 56 years old. And, um, and so I got married late. So my partners were all younger than me. We all have kids the same age. So I think about myself in terms of their age, but in, in actuality, I'm little older than them. So don't, don't tell Ben Sheffer because uh, I still think I'm the same age <laughs> yeah, as our youngest right, partner. Ben I, I catch a lot of grief from him about my age, but, um, but I think it's just part of what we do. I think, uh, that for me is, uh, the calm. So I, in fact, I, I gave up, I don't listen to headphones. I don't, uh, so when I'm out there on my bike or I'm out there running for me, that's that deep thinking that, you know, Jack Flynn talks about and those people, that that's just my deep thinking time. So, And it's incredibly different because, you know, you and I during the day are managing lots of things on our mind. And when you're out there, it's very concrete. It's like, you know, what's my pace? What's my hydration? How am I going to make it the next mile? So it's it's very focusing when you're out there. And so and also my dad never exercised. So I want my kids to see that you can incorporate this. And so, you know, we do the turkey trot. We do these things as a family. So I want my kids to grow up with exercise. Yeah,
0: that's great. Uh, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I love running without headphones. I I run both with and without, but, uh, I also find that some of my best sort of ideas, whether it be for work, but oftentimes for my marriage or for my kids or something just happen with that, you know, the calm, the serenity, especially I'm an early morning guy. So I'll be running at 5am and it'll be, you know, 40 degrees out. And all of a sudden you'll have this epiphany Eureka moment. And you're like, Oh, this is great. And so it's, I think it's, it's so, it's so important to have that balance. And it was funny because when Min was on the podcast, he said that there's no such thing as work life balance and that you're like, I think that's, that's the that concept of always being out of balance. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a little bit about that. Um, using the retrospectoscope. scope. So I struggled early on with the idea that I always needed to be like, I couldn't take a full week off. And I remember distinctly uh, about two years into my practice, My wife came down here to Florida um, with the kids and I decided I was going to stay up and, and operate. And my partner, Bob Bruce, who is an amazing person, I've spoken about him on the podcast before, we almost never fight. We're great friends. And it's about the only time that I can remember that he was legitimately mad at me. He was like, if you ever do this again, we are going to have a serious problem. Do you have any thoughts looking back on how you could have done work like differently earlier in your career or what, how do you, how do you counsel people who are just coming up? Because it's a different feeling at this point, like my, my next surgery availability is months from now, but when you're first starting out and you don't have that, what, you know, it's a different, you have different stresses.
1: Yeah. I think it's really hard uh, because you and I are in a different place. So um, so it's easy for you and I to say, have work-life balance because you and I can control our vacation days. We can control when clinic starts. Do I want to operate or not? But when you're a young surgeon coming out, the pressures are different. And so I, I think it's, again, it's easy for us to find work-life balance. Um, you know, David Goggins is a very interesting guy. I was just about to ask you about it. Oh, and great. you know, uh, he, he was, uh, for the good or the bad. I listened to a lot of David Goggins, uh, training for the Ironman and, you know, one of his things is when you're young, no, you don't want to have work life. out. You want to work. And, you know, I think you temper everything with what David Goggins yeah. says back <laughs> to what human beings yeah. really do. But I think the concept is, yeah, I think there's times for that. Um, you also have to be in a culture where it's okay. So for example, I am older than my my two younger partners or three younger partners, but we all have kids at the same age. So if I have to be at a school thing, that's totally acceptable. And one of, the, one of them will stay late. Or if You know, uh, one of my younger partners has something like that, then I'll stay. So I think having that culture around you that it's okay to do that. But it's there's a lot of pressure as a young surgeon, especially you're in a competitive marketplace, right? So it's a little different to where we are geographically than what a young surgeon in Atlanta or Boston or New York. You're certainly going to get competitive pressures from the marketplace. For me, the aha moment, uh, I'll never forget this. My middle son, Zach, is now 13. And about five or six, I was reading a book at night in bed and he said I was going to a meeting um, and he said to me, uh, Dad, do you go to these meetings because you have to go or because you want to go? And and to Ooh. me, yeah, that was uh, that hit me hard. Yeah. Right. Um, but kids, uh, they're honest. Yeah. Right? You and I take care of kids all the time. And, and that was the brutal honesty I needed. And that's still the metric that I use today. Um so, you know, for younger surgeons, things that will help you with that is um, like, for example, I try to arrange my flights late in the day. So at least I can take him to school. If you can touch him the morning that you leave, you've touched him one more time, you know, leave him something, leave them something on the counter before you go, maybe a little book or a little whatever, so that you're thinking about him. Um, FaceTime is tremendous now. You know, I'm sure you connect with your family through FaceTime, but that question, I think that's the metric we should all use. Do we need to go or do we have to go? And, for me, that's, that's been my, my barometer ever since. Yeah.
0: That's a, that's a really, I mean, that's, that's probably a, a tough thing to hear from your five to six year old. Cause yeah. I'm sure you were either about to leave or you just left. And, and that's I was heading came off for
1: a trip the next day, but right. We talked, you need those people in your life that'll call you on it. Right. Because you can tell your family, I got something important to do and they don't know what we do. And, yeah. you know, you can make everything important to the point where you're never home where they're not important. Yeah. yeah. Where they're not important. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I think, you know this, right? There's always one more case to do. There's always one more consult to see. You only get one shot at your kid's sixth, year, sixth grade graduation or to be there during that time. Bill Warner, who's one of my uh, more senior partners, he, he I, I'm starting to have teenagers now. He told me that you're going to get about 10 to 15 minutes of their attention a day, and you got to be there for the 10 or 15 minutes. And yeah. so, you know, to my eight-year-old, I'm, I'm the constant play toy. But to my teenagers, yes, you get about – that 10 or 15 minute window where they're going to talk to you and you got to be there for that. So yeah. I don't want to be in the emergency room or doing a case when I get that 15 minute chance with my kids.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I told you that I, I just got done with the cruise. Um, and I was for those who uh, haven't done it and are like me and always want to be a very active and skiing vacations, things like that. The cruise is amazing because not only are you have totally untethered from your, uh, from work. I mean, you have no access to your email and phone and it doesn't work in, in the middle of the ocean, but your kids are too. And mm-hmm. so it's like forced fun time with them. And all of a sudden, you know, they want to hang out with you again. And it was not that 15 minutes. It's just, it was, it was such a great, it's such a great opportunity. So do you think that the fact that you did get married a little bit later and had your kids a little bit later than some of your partners, maybe give you a little bit of a different perspective on not making some of those I'm going to call them rookie mistakes that probably somebody like me who got married when he was 27, um, might've made. What do you mean by rookie mistakes? So like for, like for example, so like leaving or having my kids go off without me or, or those kind of things. Do you you feel like you've had a little bit better perspective to try to balance out, um, uh, your life? Because when you got married, you were already a little bit more established in your, in your
1: career. Honestly, I, I think I'm more fortunate in some ways. Um, because I didn't have the pressure to to build a practice or to figure it out. So, you know, I look at our residents. Our, our Campbell Clinic, a lot of most of our residents have kids and young families, and they can go two or three days without seeing their kids if they're on call. And to me, I, you know, I try to touch mine every day. So, I was kind of fortunate in some ways. I think the downside um, is that um, I think the downside of being an older father is that I'm not going to be around quite as long. So, uh, that's why I try to exercise. I try to stay healthy, try to, try to be in the game with them. I, I want to be that person that's out there running around, you know, kicking a soccer ball and chasing them. So that's that part of that goes back to the reasons why I exercise.
0: So, uh, that's great. Uh, let me ask you about another one of the challenges I'm sure, although may, maybe you, you hadn't gotten married yet, but, uh, that, that comes up with, uh, with a lot of spouses, uh, especially with time away, which is the traveling fellowship, which you loved. I don't know if you did it when you were a um, uh, when you were married or not. But three weeks away from my wife seems like it would be a lot. So three weeks away from my family, the, the kids would definitely ask, like, why, "Why are you going to Europe and I'm not going to Europe?" That kind of thing. What? what are you recommending to your junior partners now? What are you recommending to your fellows now in terms of the value? Obviously, I mean, I can only imagine spending a couple weeks with Todd it's been amazing and probably got other great people you're with as well, but where do you see the value of the traveling fellowship now?
1: You know, um, I think there's two parts to that I think the value of traveling fellowships, I am so excited that we're doing this again. Um, the, you just, something was lost when it stopped because of COVID, uh, I went with Rick Bowen and Todd Milbrand and to this day they're, they're really my best friends, you know, outside of my partners in orthopedics and it's just a different relationship. I don't want to say I got a lot of best friends. I would, don't use that. that. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I would say um, the value of that is you spend two weeks with people and you become really, really close and you know how it is. It's, uh, it's everything from uh, when you're lost and don't speak the language and the train isn't there to uh, deal with all the things that come up with international travel, but um, they are lifelong friends. And so um, professionally, it's, it's funny, you know, um, I visited, I did the uh, EPAS traveling Fellowship. So uh, Helsinki, then we went to Vienna with Franz Grill, Dusseldorf with Professor Crosby and finally Poland. And ironically, Rudy Ganger uh, was uh, the young associate of uh, wow. Professor Grill back yeah. then. So you fast forward to the EPOS meeting, uh, the EPOS meeting. Uh, Rudy and I were co-chairs for the, the half-day course. So, and those relationships and friendships that I built with EPOS and the leaders of EPOS has just been tremendously helpful as to we move toward the next EPOS meeting. So, these things pay off in ways you have no idea when you're doing it. Um, my partner Derek Kelly uh, just did the AOS traveling fellowship, which you know is a long yeah, fellowship. Four weeks, right? Oh. it's longer? It's uh, uh, oh,
0: that's right. He told, he told me it was 12 weeks. It's 12 weeks. That's why he took 12 weeks.
1: off. <laughs> <not> uh, <laughs> it's somewhere between four yeah. and 12 weeks. He did seem pretty relaxed when yeah. he came back from, yeah. from, yeah. from the traveling fellowship. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think that was one, I honestly, you know, the metric was how, you know, how, he's got two young daughters and how is that going to affect Hallie, his wife and two young daughters and we're obviously very close. And so I think I think how he did that, and how I tell you is, you got to let your family know they're important. And so, you know, uh, I heard the other day establish that communication, whether it's uh, you know text or email. How's it going to be? Involve them in the trip if if you can meet them, you know, at the beginning or at the end of the trip. That's a way to do it. But you got to constantly communicate uh, that because you come home exhausted after a trip, but your spouse and your family are exhausted from you being gone. And so you need to switch those gears pretty quickly. Yeah.
0: And and oftentimes they're not ready for you to take a break from the trip that you were just on. Like, yeah, even though, you know, we're all going to be somewhat tired from staying up way too late and getting up way too early at this meeting. But when you come home, you gotta be, gotta be dad. You gotta be husband.
1: Yeah. One, you're, you're, you're right. I've learned that when you come home from a meeting, you can't, you gotta turn it on, not turn it off. Yeah. And, part of that's fun. Like, you know, you miss everybody, you want to see them, but your spouse has been dealing with with everything for the amount of time you've been gone. Yeah. So it's uh, that, really helpful when you get to the airport is you got to turn it on, not turn it off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. Well, I've got, we're, we're coming up on on our limit, but I want, I had a cut one more sort of question. And the reason that I'm suspicious that you have a good answer is because when I was one of the post faculty and you were the uh, chair, you gave me the book on David Goggins living with a seal. And I, I told you last night, that's, one of the few it's, books,
1: it's a, it's a little different book, but that's okay. Is it God against the seal or no? God he was, he, he was, okay, legend,
0: he was the seal. In it was the, written by a different person. Okay, yeah. It was but, written yeah. by, um, uh, by, uh, Sarah Blakely's husband. Yes. Uh, okay, good. Yeah. Okay,
1: go ahead. I'm sorry. So, was, but it was, okay.
0: it was a great book. And I thought, I mean, I've been given all these like betterment books and this was just a really fun book for those out there. It's, uh, Jesse Itzler. That's a guy, um, who found, was one of the founders at NetJets, um, but, but I thought it was a great book and it was just like this really refreshing book that, uh, to get as a gift, um, for teaching a course. And I read it, the, I was done by eight o'clock the next morning when you, when you gave it to me, I thought it was great. It was, and then I've subsequently read the other Goggins book. So what do you have books that you really like that you sort of gift to people that you recommend to people a lot? I'm always sort of looking for new ones.
1: Yeah. Gifts, gifts are really personal, right. Yeah. Uh, and books are even more personal. Um, I think for the, for the younger people, Find people that read and, and ask them a good book. So Peter Waters is uh, Jack Flynn. These are people uh, that, you know, I'm like, hey, what are you reading? Or, and Bob Cho has a great reading list. So there's people in our organization that just turn you on to good books. You have to find what resonates for you. So um, for me, the, the Daily Stoic and the, and the Stoic books have really resonated yeah. with me, both in my uh, athletic stuff and, and work life. Uh, David Goggins has just resonated with me at some level because of the exercise. Now, he's a very extreme, uh, but I thought the way that book was written and you can visualize some of the physical things they went through and with exercise, you can appreciate what that really was. Um, But I I like the concept of the governor, right? I think that, and I believe this, uh, that I think there's a governor that when our brain tells us to quit long before our body will quit. So Maybe it's in that sixth hour of a surgery where you're tired and there's a shortcut. And I think that's when you tell the governor, no, you're not taking a shortcut. You're going to do the right thing. That's what happens at mile 23 of a marathon is the governor is telling you that you heard and let's go take a shower. And, and that's when you say no, you're 40% and you can get to 60%. So, whether you're you know you're working at work or you're um, exercising that the whole concept of the governor is really interesting to me
0: yeah I, I, I thought that book was uh, it's, the book is uh, can't hurt me yes and I, I listened to it as an audiobook which is nice because uh, he actually provides sort of insight on every chapter it's you uh, you may have able listened to an audiobook make sure your kids are out of the room if you're <laughs> if you're listening to the audiobook but it's uh it's good and I think that your, your points are, are really well taken and his mindset I think is is one that anybody who does complex surgery, especially long complex surgery, I think, could benefit from. So I agree. Well,
1: that's good. And we're we're laughing because uh, we were going to put our parental advisory yeah. on that because yeah. I so much want my teenage boys to listen to this book, but they're just not ready for the yeah, language. Yeah. But to haven't read the audio book is fantastic because you get his commentary on the chapters and it's incredible. Yeah. But um, you know, I think in, in fitness does play it right in in a longer surgery. I think being in shape. Uh, you know, you heard from Dave Skaggs today at IPAS about the physical wear and tear we take. So I think being in better general shape, especially for people that do long surgery, is going to help us.
0: Yeah, I know when Larry Linky was on the podcast, he talked about that. And, I mean, his, he, he probably does the longest of the long surgeries. And, and you see him at his age. He's still in incredible shape and, and very fit. It's, it's, it's super helpful. So, well, Jeff, this has been awesome. I've uh, I've enjoyed uh, it as I knew I would. And um, you're a great friend to to willing to do it and and uh hopefully everybody will enjoy listening to it as much as i enjoyed talking
1: to you No, nick thanks for taking the time I'm, I'm grateful for your friendship too it's been fun to go through this together there are just so many good people in this organization that the, the future is great so i'm excited i had a lot of fun doing it with you
0: good well thanks. thank you and uh we will Should we say uh, something about suite? oh yeah and uh min uh the i'm sure you'll enjoy the other three bottles sorry about the bill man yeah that's right all right take care everyone